1: Amala felt nauseated. This wasn't the escape she had imagined when she left her village two days ago. A blast of foul breath mixed with the smell of sweat and urine hit her as she and Carti got off the train on a sticky hot April day. Before landing here, Melas were the place where she had seen so many people at once. But Sialda Station was no boisterous fair of her village. None of the loud cackle of her friend's laughter or hawkers bellowing their throats out to attract customers. Instead, there was swirling chaos, people boarding off trains, passengers pushing each other to catch trains, porters elbowing the crowds as they ferried luggage. This is GP Gottlieb, and today I'm talking with Bashwati Ghosh, author of Victory Colony 1950. In her novel, Gosh's rich descriptions of daily life relationships and formal manners are enhanced with colorful Bengali terms and descriptions of foods so varied and fascinating that my mouth watered through an entire afternoon of reading. Today, in talking to Bhashwati about her novel, I hope to understand the mindset of an entire generation that had to leave their homes with just the clothes on their backs to rush into a chaotic, precarious existence In which they had to rely on the good graces of an increasingly apathetic public and leadership. Luckily, the characters in Victory Colony 150 are able to pull themselves out of some of their misery. Hi, Bashwati. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for
0: having me, Galit.
1: So, what inspired you to write Victory Colony 1950?
0: So thanks for that question. Uh, this book has, you know, been a subconscious part of me, I would say, through my growing much of my growing up years. Uh, this was because my grandparents who had lost their home and belongings in Borishal, which went to East Pakistan in 1947. So in that sense, I was a third-generation refugee myself. And uh, as I grew up listening to a steady fair of stories that my grandmother related on her life in Borishal about its riverine beauty and the village camaraderie, the freshness of its abundant fish, fruits and vegetables, about the strength of uh, my grandmother's mother's personality and you know the quirkiness of, of, of her siblings, Uh, I somehow became a cohabitant of a place and a culture that I'd never seen in person, yet I knew it intimately. And there's another interesting inheritance that I carried from my grandmother, uh, that is of being a writer. She wrote in Bengali, and a number of her short stories also feature refugees who streamed into West Bengal, India at the time of partition or, or following partition. And one such story, you know, resulted in the kind of horrific tragedy that is often associated with the partition of India. And it didn't leave me. So I wanted to reimagine the fate of the young refugee woman who was at the center of that story. And that's how Victory Colony 1950 started. It took seed in me.
1: Mm. So there are two characters. Amala and Manas. They're probably about the age of your grandparents. Can you say more about that?
0: Yes. So these uh, two characters are, you know, entirely fictional, although, you know, instances or uh, uh, types of them probably do exist in real life. But for the purposes of my novel, they sprang from my imagination more or less. And I'm sure... Uh, in the subconscious, I had the stories that I had heard of part- about partition or read, and so uh, somewhere in the back of my mind was uh, to pit two completely different, polar opposite characters against each other or facing each other. So in this in this case, you know, Amala comes from a very underprivileged poor, economically poorer background, whereas Manas is the exact opposite. He's from an affluent background. He is well-educated. Uh, and uh, I wanted to see, you know, how it plays out, how the dynamics of this relationship plays out in the backdrop of of the very unfortunate circumstances that Amala finds herself in. So that's how, uh, that's how I kind of uh, brought them to life, I would say.
1: Manas sees all the chaos in the city and asks his grandfather why India's leaders didn't see the chaos coming when they agreed on the Radcliffe Line um, that determined who lived where in 1947. Can you continue about that?
0: Yes. So uh, the Radcliffe Line is, you know, it's the actual, the physical uh, demarcation that kind of separated India from Pakistan, and it came into effect uh, in August 1947. Uh, That's the time uh, that India became independent. So this line is named after Sir Cyril Radcliffe, who had this thankless job of uh, of actually demarcating these two new countries on the basis of... uh, a majority Hindu or a majority Muslim that is based on a religious uh, basis uh, he had to demarcate and he had to separate these two countries so that's how the Radcliffe line comes into effect it's, it is is literally uh, a physical line which was drawn on a map uh, to separate two countries and uh, the person did not even have a lot of background or context when he was assigned with this job. And that's how, you know, people were displaced overnight and uh, so much of mayhem followed, so much of carnage and bloodshed and uh, loss of property, loss of lives and a lot of madness. So uh, that is kind of the background of Ratcliffe Line, And so uh, that's, that's how, you know, that's why Manas is questioning uh, the sense of it.
1: Amala comes on the train with her younger brother, and uh, almost immediately she is treated very poorly by police officers and other officials.
0: Can you explain that? Yes. So uh, the section of population that Amala belongs to is the poorest of the poor. So if you uh, look at the, the influx that happened or the migration that happened uh, following partition in the east of india because partition happened on the eastern and western borders of india and the nature of the two partitions were kind were very different on the west you know that is where you find most of the stories from and there was a lot of burning looting a lot of uh, you know bloodshed and slaughtering of people So it was a very violent form uh, of uh, partition that happened. Whereas in the East, there was a lot less violence and carnage and that kind of bloodshed. At the same time, the nature of the people who migrated from the East were also different because right at the time of partition, a lot of the people who migrated into India from the Eastern side, they were well-to-do. They were either middle class or upper middle class. And they already had ties uh, with India in some form. You know, they were either working or studying there. So they had ties. They had the wherewithal to be there. But the, the t- at the, t- the time when Victory Colony 1950 takes place, that is 1950, which is, you know, three years after the partition of india this is when the poorest of poor who had chosen to remain in the new country you know in the newly demarcated country of pakistan uh, they had uh, chosen to remain there they did not really have the wherewithal they did not have the resources to migrate so they stuck on but uh, just a few years down the line the situation became unlivable for them and that is when somebody like amala has to cross over she has no choice but to cross over because women are now getting raped their properties are being burnt down and so on so when she is moving you know she is kind of unwanted on both sides of the border so so the place that she has left which she has known as home has now been rendered unlivable for her. Whereas, you know, even on the other side, which is the Indian side, the police, the way they treat her is because she's an easy target for them, Uh, being a woman and being a poor woman on top of that.
1: I don't want to make you discuss politics, but uh, um, was that violence um, and the, I don't know what else was going on. Was it on both sides of the border
0: It was a lot more on the western side, which is the Punjab side. It was a lot less on the eastern side, which is where my story is based. So
1: I've read just a little about the Indian caste system. Were Amala and Manas from different castes? And if so, how would the mother have figured that out?
0: oh uh, that is uh, very easy it's uh, the caste is can be determined from one's surname or the last name uh, so uh, so amala yes she it wasn't clear what what caste was she so uh, at one point uh, you know mrinmoy who is manas's mother she calls her shudra which is actually outside of the caste system so these yeah mm. so they are not even considered as part of the hindu caste hierarchy they are castaways or out, outcasts you can say uh, so
1: oh I, I didn't realize there was that level of uh description also
0: yes so uh-huh. so she calls her shudra just to call her out and to identify her as such and to make her realize you know what her place is uh, so so there is really no match in terms of like social uh, bonding there is uh, no match between these two classes or castes of people however uh, a, a match like this was not unheard of but it would always be an exception as as it is in the case uh, of this story well
1: she gets to be on the list of worst mother-in-laws of all time, all over the world. <laughs> because when she says that Amala isn't even worthy of cleaning her toenail, that was a little harsh, I think. Yeah.
0: And that's an, that's an actual, it, that is an actual saying in Bengali that I have just uh, literally translated. So so it exists. Uh. Yes. Interesting. At one point,
1: there's a Brahmin cook. Can you explain, since we're speaking about the caste system, in light of Brahmins being of the highest caste? Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So, uh, so in the Hindu caste structure, Brahmins hold the highest position, and uh, it's interesting that you know uh, Manas's family, their caste is that of Kayasthas, who were mainly in the service services sectors. That is, they would work in different professions. They, they were highly educated, but they in the caste structure, they fall below the Brahmins. But uh, in Bengal, uh, in 19th and 20th century, it was uh, an accepted practice to uh, strive or to aspire to have Brahmin cooks uh, cooking the food in households, and even lower castes like in the case of Kayasthas—that is, uh, the the caste that Manas's family belongs to—even they would aspire to have a Brahmin cook because then they are, you know, uh, rising up the social or the caste ladder in in by proxy because they have a Brahmin cook who cooks for them and they consume the food made by a Brahmin. So Brahmin cooks were in high demand at that time. Good to know. This is
1: taking place, the story takes place 70 years ago, 1950. How much has
0: changed? Is the caste system still in place in India? So it was constitutionally abolished. Uh, It is uh, unlawful to practice however uh, you know uh, laws say one thing and uh, in real life uh, our practices are entirely different so uh, the caste uh, system uh, very much exists even now and uh, the i would say the scourge of it or the the uh, the harshness of it has probably softened over the years uh, people are more enlightened now they uh, don't practice it with the same kind of rigidity as they used to uh, but it has not disappeared it still prevails uh, very much and it kind of finds its way in insidious ways you know and it will not be on your face uh, similar to how racism works you know in many countries where it's not really uh, in your face, uh, you're not really asked to go back where you came from, but it might be, uh, it might play out in more subtle ways, and uh, so the person is made to feel that you know they uh, they belong to a certain category of people. So it certainly uh, remains very much uh, in existence in in modern day India.
1: Huh. Interesting. Manas, Manas and his friends are college students and they volunteer with the refugees, but he didn't learn to do that kind of work. It wasn't something valued in his home. In fact, his mother, whom we've already discussed, seems to think it's beneath him. Can you address it? Is there something in the Hindu religion about the holiness of helping
0: others? If not, where is it from? So it's, you know in if you if we talk in terms of religion as in every other religion you know service to mankind is also enshrined in the hindu religion it is uh, definitely uh, uh, held in high esteem and it is uh, something that is a noble thing to practice. However, in 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 the case of this book, Manas's mother is coming to, uh, you know, her position is coming from a different place. It is not so much uh, tied to re- religion or her thoughts about it. It has more to do with uh, where she sees Manas uh, Manas's potential uh, in terms of in from a purely class. Uh, Perspective. Uh, so they are from the affluent uh, section of the society. At the same time, uh, this uh, independence has changed things. It is no longer uh, a British ruled uh, state any longer. And uh, their fortunes have also suffered. The family fortunes have also, you know, uh, been impacted because of all the chaos that takes place at the time of um, independence so manas's work, mother is worried about him uh, volunteering or, and uh, spending too much time volunteering and you know focusing less on his career so that is where she's com- she's coming to it from a purely uh, class perspective and uh, not not so much from a religious perspective
1: mm, that's understandable well- there's so many interesting things I want to ask about, but what does it mean when people gesture with a namaskar? Uh,
0: it means, uh, it's, it's a greeting. Uh, it's a form of uh, formal greeting, uh, and uh, it is uh, just to extend your admiration or love or respect uh, that you gesture a namaskar. Is that the most respectful way of greeting somebody? It definitely is amongst the most uh, respectful ways. and there are other ways, uh, you know in in, in Bengalis and in, in among many other Indian uh, uh, regions and uh, communities, uh, the touching of the f- el- feet of elders is also held in high esteem. Uh, it is a mark of respect. but uh, Namaskar is probably the most uh, practiced and uh, familiar way of, of greeting somebody or showing respect. Huh.
1: So why was Amala unusual in the refugee camp? She's a single young woman who was quote fit of body and mind yet without a man, a parent, a sibling, or a child. Why weren't there way more young women uh, like her?
0: Uh, So mostly, you know, when women migrate, uh, especially at the time when the story is taking place, it would be unusual for them to uh, migrate uh, on their own or uh, with a younger sibling because they uh, would be conditioned to be dependent uh, on on some uh, able-bodied male personality within the household so it could be a father it could be a husband it could be an older brother but her case is entirely unusual because she has now lost both her parents so her father is no longer her guardian and uh, she has a younger brother who she has to look after so uh, she her case is really uh, a sort of an unusual Uh, one of the exceptions, probably, uh, where she uh, is not dependent, uh, but she is the one who has to actually fend for somebody else or look after someone in her care. Hmm.
1: Aside from Amala and Manas, the, uh, the friends and colleagues and family, one of the main characters in your novel is Indian food. I, I didn't always recognize the names, but you describe a huge number of vegetables prepared in so many different ways and scrumptious desserts. Can you say more about what makes East Bengali food wonderful? And also, when is your cookbook coming out?
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, Yeah, so uh, one of the, you know, uh, uh, before answering your question, uh, one of the things I want to mention is that, you know, food occupied a kind of central place in this novel, uh, not because I'm a food lover or, uh, you know, I just wanted to put food in it. Uh, It was it was a conscious uh, decision and uh, it was inspired by, you know, how I had seen my grandmother hold on to food you know as probably the last the last remnant of her past because that uh, you, she had been transplanted now she had been displaced uh, in a completely new place uh, she did not even get to live in west bengal which is you know uh, the border of uh, east bengal uh, where they come from but uh, My grandparents had to come and settle in Delhi, which was geographically entirely different, culturally different, uh, linguistically different. So everything was new territory. It was a foreign country for her. And uh, as I grew up, uh, I realized this much later, but as I grew up, I saw that, you know, she would go back to the foods of her childhood and even try to grow them in in a very different climate and different uh, soil of Delhi and uh, try to recreate the recipes that her mothers that her mother and grandmother had made and uh, feed those things to us so that you know she, not only she remained rooted to her past but that she was also passing it down uh, you know, to the subsequent generations. So we also got a taste of, you know, what it had been like for her. So I think this played uh, uh, played on my mind when I was writing this book, and that is why you see food uh, having such a central place, such a place of prominence, uh, because it becomes a vehicle not only of Amala's present. Uh, in the way food is described, to uh, you know, to point as a marker of how how difficult things are for her, but it is also a vehicle of her past and her memory, and uh, that's that's why you know uh, it kind of comes into such prominence. And the third reason was that the foods of East and West Bengal are markedly different. In the way they are prepared, and in the way they are consumed, so that was another reason why I wanted to bring this in. And towards the end of the book, you know, when she uh, she is tasting the food from in Manasa's house, she's unable to uh, familiarize herself, or she's unable to relish those uh, because her taste buds are kind of so entrenched in the food that her mother had cooked that she's, uh, she finds it difficult to get used to this new food.
1: Yeah, I loved, I loved all the food.
0: So keep <laughs> doing you. that.
1: And speaking of whatever you're working on next, will there be food in your next book? And what are you working on?
0: Yeah. So, yes, uh, there will be food, but again, food is not a central character. Uh, uh, <laughs> but But I hope, you know, it will be there um, uh, significantly. So I'm uh, writing a nonfiction book on Delhi, which is the capital of India. And uh, it concerns all the different communities that have made Delhi their home. Since independence and even before independence, and so I'm looking at different uh, characteristics and different aspects of those communities, like you know, how they have uh, worked in the capital, uh, how they have uh, looked at their education, and uh, you know how they have held on to their cultural practices and habits, of which food is a very integral part. So that is, that is the book I am trying to wrap up uh, as, as we speak.
1: Sounds fascinating. And thank you again for joining me today. It's just been a pleasure talking to you, Bashwati.
0: Same here, Galit. Uh, thank you so much for all, the, all those questions.
1: And again, thank you for joining me. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to author Bashwati Ghosh about her delicious and moving novel, Victory Colony 1950. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book every day of the week. Happy reading, everyone.